Well, some of the children are going to that special time with Pastor Darren and many others remaining. We're grateful for that. Children are welcome either place. Let me say just a quick speaking of children. I had a few of these written down. We caught Caroline last week, but we also had Zeta Frost um, had a birthday this past week. Also, Melissa Goldstein. Now, she's not a children, but she's a children of one of our elders, so he's not really that elder, is he? So it's just the way that works. So, Melissa, if you happen to be watching this morning, as I'm sure that you are, <laughs> uh, thank you. Happy birthday. And then today, uh, David uh, McCoskey has a birthday right behind us there. Happy birthday, David. Good to see you. Thank you for being with us. Happy birthday to you. That's a staller for you to get your Bibles, by the way. If that's like, why is he talking about birthdays? Grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number seven. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. There's one in front of you. And uh, that's yours to take. If you don't have a Bible, please take that. Uh, and if you want to take that this morning because you forgot yours, that's great. Um, mark in it. Mark it up as we're taking notes. That's fine, too. Also, if you're following along on the Bible app, you should find a link to this morning's notes. Uh, if not, those of you Grace Covenant family know that um, it's right there in the church app. That's actually the easier way to get to it. We are moving toward the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we journey through this Sermon on the Mount together, I'm afraid that there is a real and present danger in some of the text that we've already seen. There's a temptation for us when we dive into great teaching in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we read these descriptions of life and, and how things ought to be. We see the incredible teaching of our Lord on display right in front of us. And we think, you know what, life would be better if everybody would just do this, right? If people would just, I don't know, be nice, be kind, stop telling lies. I mean, wouldn't everything just be awesome if people lived according to what's written there? I mean, just imagine with me for a moment if people knew how to deal rightly and productively with anger. What kind of society would we live in? If people weren't consumed with lust and acting out on the lust of the flesh all the time. If, if we were investing in healthy and joyful marriages. If when we made promises, we kept promises. If we had a peaceful and gracious response when we were mistreated instead of making a bad situation worse, if we loved our enemies, if we gave to the needy without needing work. I mean, these are all like, yeah, sign me up. That sounds like utopia. I mean, this sounds like something maybe Disney might have envisioned for the original Epcot, I don't know. But, but there's the danger, right? These are not just things that we get to do in order to earn God's favor. Nobody does enough of these things to earn their place in the kingdom of God. Nobody chalks up enough points on the board to inherit eternal life. No one in their own strength is even capable of approaching the quality of life described here in the Sermon on the Mount. Biblical Christianity on the whole is this orientation of our whole life that depends on the trustworthiness of God and His Word for our success. Some of you know the name Adrian Rogers. He pastored in Memphis for a long time. He was a, just a stake in the ground for conservative biblical theology and scriptural authority. 
and um, grateful for his life and legacy and ministry. He wrote of a time when he sat down with President George H.W. Bush. Seated with him were D. James Kennedy, Dr. Charles Stanley, and Dr. Jerry Falwell. That's a pretty intimidating room. They were sitting in Bush's library, and one of them, again, different day, one of them just comes right out and asks George Herbert Walker Bush, Sir, what are you trusting in to get you to heaven? You gotta love it when preachers get in the room, right? And Mr. Bush responded, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he paid my sin debt with his blood. I believe that he was buried, raised again from the dead, and I put my faith and trust in him, and I'm trusting him for my salvation. And Adrian Rogers was about to, he said, I was just about to give him an A+, but then he said, and I also endeavor to live by the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. Well, Dr. Kennedy, sitting there, uh, Adrian writes, had the temerity, I love that word, to say, sir, I want to tell you something right now. Keeping the Ten Commandments and living by the Sermon on the Mount and the Golden Rule has nothing to do with your salvation. And Mr. Bush said, you ready for this? I disagree with you. Well, the temperature went up a little bit, I've, I would imagine, in the room. This pleasant little talk, maybe handing, oh, let, well, give me a gospel track. Let's get out of here. No, Dr. Kennedy went right back in and he said, listen, uh, he said, you disagree with us? He said, yes. Bush said, do you mean to tell me that a man can profess faith in God and then not change his life? Dr. Kennedy responded, well, of course it would change his life. If he has been saved, it will change his life. But he does not do those things in order to be saved, but because he has been saved. For which Bush replied, well, if you put it that way, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I, if we're not careful, we think, oh, I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do that, and, and then I'll earn God's favor. We don't. That's not the way this works. Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount what the, the design of the disciples' life looks like. He's calling his followers to a higher standard than what is passing as the righteousness of of the Pharisees. He's showing us and teaching us, just as he did those listeners and disciples on that hillside that day, what kingdom living looks like. How disciples of Jesus are being transformed day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, and parents, let's be honest, sometimes minute by minute. <laughs> being transformed and in need of a touch from God's Spirit. He's showing us that persistence and perseverance is a key factor, but it depends on the Lord. This morning's text is going to point us to better investments. The market is volatile right now. I don't know if you've noticed or if you've turned the news on in the last week, but the markets are going to be wonky for the next little while. The investment markets, global markets, they're going to do this, then they're going to figure out, then they're going to do this, then oil's going to go up and all the things. And that's the extent of my market knowledge for you on Sunday morning. It's wonky and it's likely to get wonkier. Um, but wouldn't it be awesome if you could invest in something with a guaranteed return? And that's exactly what Jesus is laying out for us here today. I know you know the golden rule, so I borrowed that and called this passage these golden investments. He's calling us to invest in prayer and in people or others. 
Let's take a look at the first couple verses this morning as he's calling us to invest in prayer. I'm going to put the verse on the screen. It looks better on the page in front of you if you want to grab that. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. We're actually just going to put up those first two verses because they're so familiar to us. I'm not going to skip 9 and 10. I'm just going to touch that in a moment. So don't, don't think I'm going to skip over that. I'll come to that. But it, it is just a point of allegory that the Lord's giving there. Look at verses 7 and 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, we're going to leave that on the screen for, for just a moment because I want you to pick up on something. Jesus is talking about prayer here. Right, we all get that. That's yes, this, this means yes. Okay, good, right. Jesus is talking about prayer here. Now, now, hold up a minute. He's already talked about prayer in this sermon. This is one sermon, y'all. Remember, he gave us the model prayer. He's talked about prayer and fasting. <laughs> He's talked about how the Pharisees pray and how the tax collector prayed. And I, I mean, Jesus, there must be something to this over the course of my preaching and teaching as I've had the privilege to serve as your pastor here at Grace Covenant Church. You hear me often picking up on the notes throughout the Bible that hit on prayer and evangelism and discipleship and local church body. I mean, I don't put them in there. I just bring your attention when they show up and they show up often in the New Testament since most of it is either to or about the church. Spoiler alert, right? Jesus, in one sermon here, keeps hitting this drum on prayer. There might be something to it. I wonder if we would describe our culture, church culture, as prayerless. Probably not. And some of you, I can see it, a little bit of a... I even said some of you in your spirit have taken off your glasses and done this. and says, Pastor, I beg to differ with you. I'm going to show you why I'm not prayerless. Okay. Can I just tell you, not you, of course, but others are, are struggling with this. Western culture, Western Christian culture, when compared to global Christian culture, is not a culture that is characterized by prayer. You see, our culture is addicted to hustle and bustle, smooth organization and powerful institutions and human self-confidence and achievement, new opinions and innovation and new schemes. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Western culture has so conformed thoroughly to that and to that environment, it can be difficult to see how a professing Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church differs from contemporary secular humanism when it comes to prayer. No Christian is greater than their prayer life. You won't read enough Bible to make up for your lack of prayer. You won't do enough good deeds to make up for your lack of prayer. You won't wear a good Christian t-shirt walking with me in South End trying to reach people for Jesus to make up for your lack of prayer. 
I won't preach a good enough sermon to make up for my lack of prayer. One old-time preacher said the, old, the problem with our praying is that we often stop praying just as we're getting started. The call here is not prayerlessness. The call here is to pray, but it's also to persistence. Persistence is required. Persistence in what? In praying. We're not consumed with praying for some isolated blessing, but I want to point you here to context, context, context. You see, I'm afraid we all know this verse, and it's a verse we claim when we're praying for God to do something big in our life, or we're praying because we need an answer to this, and we need God to meet this need for us, and so we know to ask, and we know to seek, and we know to knock. You probably even got that crochet. Does anybody crochet anymore? You've got that crochet. Your grandmother crocheted for you and put it somewhere. Cross-stitched. No? I'm old, y'all. Uh, a graphic design, it's a screensaver. There we go, that's about the best I can do. Your watch face, right, may have that on there. I don't know. Ask, seek, knock, and we, you've got it in your war room, okay? There's some language we love. But context, 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 nestled right here in the midst of these incredible designs that God is placing on the disciples' lives. He's saying, pray. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do this on your own, and you won't do it in a way that brings God glory unless you are a man and woman of prayer. The word there for ask is one of those tenses of a word that means keep on asking. Ask and keep on asking. Ask and it will be given to you. Keep on asking. We ask God to give us, to liberally give us the virtues that Jesus has been describing here. You see, that's the context. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But remember a few weeks ago, we talked about not treasuring treasure. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where, and what happened? Where moth and rust can corrupt, or thieves break in and steal. I want to tell you, your pastor's been under strong conviction as I've been studying this passage, thinking about all the times that I've applied ask, seek, and knock for stuff or for doors to open here on earth for me for some opportunity. I've labored much in prayer at times, but I'm afraid I've made poor investments, and that's why I'm not seeing great returns. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount and living out the gospel, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Ask for what? Ask for my help so that you can live out these things that I'm putting before you. James 4, 2 and 3 says, you desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. Well, how could we ask for something wrongly? Jesus said to pray. I'm praying, but you're asking for stuff to consume, for your own passion and desires. And God is trying to tell us, Jesus, standing there on that beautiful mount referred to now as the Mount of Beatitudes, Jesus is standing there saying, ask and keep on asking God to do a work in you so that you shine as light in a dark place. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Now, the seeking is not seeking for an answer. 
but it's a seeking for God. Newsflash, God's not lost. You don't need to find him. That's not what I'm talking about here. But let's be honest. The noise and the clamor of the day can drown out the sound of his voice. Or is it just me? Newsflash for you. Your pastor, after preaching the word and sitting down here after service, having children come and quote scripture to me that they've worked on memorizing all week and adults who are saying, I'm in it too. I want the word of God deep in my life. And they come up and quote scripture to me. I mean, it's, it's a high moment. Sundays are a great day. I leave tired, but I leave rewarding. I can be distracted. I don't need any help getting distracted before I leave the property. And I'm just betting if that's me and I've been studying this all week, there may be somebody else struggling with it too. We seek the Lord, Isaiah said, while he may be found. We call upon him while he is near. I'm encouraging you this morning, as you get into prayer in your prayer closet this week or your prayer time with the Lord this week, get that image of that woman pressing through the crowd that Jesus described with the issue of blood that she'd had for 12 years. That woman who had exhausted all of her means and everything that she had. That woman who nobody could help and society had pushed to the side. That woman that had to press through and move through the crowd, touching, knowing that she was making things unclean as she was going, but she got to where Jesus was and she was made whole, press through the crowd of all those distracting noises and seek the Lord this week in your prayer time. Don't just seek to check off that you've prayed. Keep on seeking and keep on knocking. Notice the progression here, asking, seeking, knocking. A side note to parents, and then I'll give a illustration from biblical times. Parents, you got this right. Kids, we all know when we need mom and daddy, we ask, hey mom. My wife's first name is hey mom, right? Hey mom. And then they'll come to me and I think, oh good, they're coming to me because they know they don't need to bother mom. And they come to me and they say, hey dad. Yes, how can I help you? Where's mom, right? That's what I get. (laughs) Bless her heart. I can help you with something. I, I, this is the worst. Chase said no. Chase is my only kid here. This is the worst. Uh, when they say, hey, Dad. Yeah, where's Mom? Oh, let's not bother Mommy right now. And they go, never mind. <laughs> I thought like that. Nobody? Just my house. Okay. But you get like, hey, Mom. Nothing. So then what do they do? They get up. They, Mom. Mom. Start seeking. Look, Mom. And then they find you in the bathroom. Trying to have a moment to yourself. Mom, mom, mom. TV's not working or whatever it is, right? Something urgent, life-shattering. You see the urgency growing, right? The intensity growing. Let me take you back to Bible times. If I was going to try to find, uh, if, if, if Pastor Norm lived in a town that I was unfamiliar with and I was going to visit him, he had sent communication to me, I'm going to go see. When I get to the city, I stop at the gate and I ask the people at the gate where he is. They give me directions to where he is. I've asked at the gate, and now I move through the city with the focus seeking for the directions they've given me, seeking for those landmarks. I've asked, I'm seeking, and then I get to his house, and I knock. Do you see it? It's not just intensity, it's intimacy God is pointing us to here. He's calling us in. 
He's calling us into his presence. He's calling us in. We're not knocking, though, hoping for an audience. Thank God for this, for those of us who have been blood-washed by the Lamb of glory. The Bible says we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We're only knocking to let him know we're there. He invites us into his chambers and then to do business, we're invited into the throne room and it's not just a buddy or a pal, it's the king of glory. No wonder so many Christians today don't look like Jesus described that we should look in the Sermon on the Mount because I believe our ability to live this out is in direct proportion to the flickering feebleness in our prayer life. Jesus has given us a golden opportunity to see a great return on our investment this morning in our relationship with God. And we take that, let me not say we, I've taken that incredible investment opportunity that he's given before and squandered it on things that didn't matter or amount to much. God seems to be laying this out in direct response to Jeremiah the prophet's promise in Jeremiah 29 where he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me, not an answer, not a blessing, not a thing, not a healing, not a promotion, not a relationship with somebody here, but when you seek me with your whole heart. Realizing that in and of ourselves we are incapable of fulfilling the great commandment, <laughs> loving God. We need God's help to love God. Have you ever thought about how that works? The great commission, we, we need God's power to fulfill the great commission. We can't even live out the Beatitudes worth a dime without the help from God. And God is telling us how to get it. We're called to pray and to keep on asking and to keep on seeking and to keep on knocking. The goal here is to be with the king, one missionary wrote recently. Why are we so weak and impotent in our work? Why have we watched in our lifetime as the number of lost people has increased geometrically? Are we not weak in our impact for God because we are weak in our time spent with God? I find that God often commands us in his word to do the things that don't come naturally and he is commanding us multiple times in one sermon to pray. There might be something to it. Only as we pray and seek the Lord's power to equip us for the work at hand can we hope to invest in others in a way that points people to our precious Lord and Savior. Second point, there's only two. Second shorter than the first, it's only one verse. Investing in others. Investing in others. Now let's flavor that with context. I said I wasn't going to skip those two verses there, but think about what the Lord is saying. He's saying ask, seek, knock, and then he gives us a way to treat others. We're going to see that in just a moment. And, and Jesus says, which of you fathers would give your son a stone when he asks for a piece of bread? He's not asking for anything elaborate. He just needs a basic need met. Why would you give him something that looked like something helpful when it would hurt him? Not going to happen. Why would you give him a serpent that looks like a fish, a venomous serpent that would bite him and possibly kill your son? 
thinking he was going to get something that he needed. Bread and fish, just something to live on. Why would you do that with his basic needs? You wouldn't. Even you, being sinful, don't give cruel gifts to your kids, fathers that love their kids. And then he says, God's love for you is so much better, infinitely better. He's going to give you the best. He knows what's good for you. He knows, thank God, even the Holy Spirit takes our feeble prayers and has taken mine and makes them better when they get to the throne room. Matthew 7, 12, the verse says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It seems simple enough. I mean, look at it. In our treatment of others, it's pretty straightforward. We start with what we want, right? Whatever we want others to do with us. So we just start there. That's where we start. And then we finish with what others want. That's pretty cool. And then we rejoice because this is what God wants. It's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I'm not going to violate the Ten Commandments related to my brother. Like, I'm not going to hurt Jeremy. And, and then I'm going to fulfill the law if I'm just living life this way. That principle, it's a golden rule. Now, Jesus didn't call it the golden rule. It was actually some king in the first century that had the rule inscribed in gold in his throne room. That's where all that came from. And then they put those headers in the Bible. Isn't that cool? little trivia. Caroline probably knew that if it was on the screen earlier. She'd have gotten that right. But um, we've adopted as that because it's a great gold standard of treating others. This is not brain science or rocket surgery here, is it? No? Okay, just see if you're listening. You might be interested to know that Jesus' take on this principle, though, is completely different from all the rabbis teaching at the time and even other religions teaching the same thing. They all came at it from a negative position. You ever met these folks? Like they just refuse to give you a positive anything? Uh, a negative times a negative equals a positive, but they never get there. It's just a negative times a negative times a negative times a negative. That's the way culture was then. Certainly no connection to that today whatsoever. But this is the way most people knew it. Don't do anything to anyone that you wouldn't want done to you. Right? That's not like something my grandma would have said. Um, it sounds like this. If you do not enjoy being robbed, then don't rob others. Okay? Um, if you don't like being hated, don't hate others. Okay? If you don't care to be clubbed over the head, then don't club somebody else over the head. Do you see the difference? That was the way it was taught. Between the way it was taught and what Jesus was saying here, whatever you would like done to you, whatever you would really, really like then do that for others. And one author writes, in both quality and quantity. Wow. Context, context, context. This is not just treating people nice so they'll be nice to you. What's the context here? Whatever you would want others to do to you as you're endeavoring to pray, like Jesus said pray, as you're trying to walk in the Spirit and have the mind of Christ so that you can be salt and light to a world, whatever you would want somebody to do for you as you're endeavoring to be on fire for God, you do for others. It's more than just being nice. This isn't karma we're talking about. This is investing in others for the glory of the king. Can I bring your attention 
to uh, one verse in Philippians that I think sums it up well. We're going to read it out loud together. Philippians 2, 3. It's a great, great pointing back to this. Let's look. Do nothing with me from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Can you imagine society? If we would live, like if you pick a life verse, there's one to try to embody. But again, there's more to it, right? Because if that doesn't flow out of your intimacy with Christ, then that gets you the accolades. He's the nicest man. She's the nicest lady. He's just so nice. Just so nice. When we interact with people, we want the aroma of Christ to be what lingers. There's one little word in Matthew 7, 12. We're not going to do a grammar lesson here today, but I do want you to look at it. Some of your translations at the beginning of verse 12, the ESV has it rendered so, and some of your translations have it rendered therefore. It's making my point for me. So whatever you wish that others would do to you. The, the word so and therefore there, just, just consider for a moment, it's saying these two things are connected. You don't start something with so or therefore. We had a Bible teacher for years that says anytime you see a therefore, you look and see what it's there for. Yeah, three years of seminary for that. That's great. <laughs> uh, so let's not get too technical there, but let's just know that these things are connected. Here, here's, here's Jesus telling us you cannot live out the golden rule without persisting in prayer. And you won't persist in prayer unless you believe that God has your best interest at heart and that our good Father will give you what is right and good. And the reason all of this gets the point to Jesus is because the love that we show others is fueled by our time with the God who so loved us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and made a way, watch this, that we could talk to God on his terms. It all points back to Jesus. These verses point so powerfully uh, to our hearts and point our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody wrote it this way. No one ever prayed to the Father so persistently and expectantly as Jesus did. He never stopped talking to his Father. He never stopped trusting his Father. He knew more intimately than anyone that he was a good Father. There's your standard for persisting in prayer. How about your standard for treating others? Nobody ever loved like Jesus did. No one. Friend or foe, his love was like a river of compassion and mercy and grace. Look to Jesus and his love for sinners like you and like me to see the golden rule in action. There'll be no disappointment if we fix our eyes on Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I don't know about your time and how much energy you have and what your calendar looks like or how those to-dos keep stacking up in your world. But I know this, with the precious time that I have to spend in prayer, I certainly don't want to squander that investment. It's a precious gift the Lord's given us. If we don't want to waste our prayer, we would do well to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. He's driving the point home, isn't he? You see, I've found that I can ask, seek, and knock, and persist pretty well when one of my kids 
is sick. When somebody close to me is in trouble, if I'm in financial trouble or hoping for a promotion or if we have a frightening or dangerous task ahead of us, we generally find it easy to hit our knees. But Jesus is lovingly and firmly pushing us here and asking us this question, do we persist in our prayers for our spiritual growth and maturity? I mean, when's the last time, sorry, not for you, mirror, when's the last time you, Pastor Chad, labored in prayer and tears before the Lord because you wanted to see more of Jesus on display in your life? Are we seeking the Lord for healthy, joyful marriages? Are we seeking the Lord for a peaceful and gracious response to being mistreated? Are we seeking the Lord for help and genuinely loving our enemies? Are we persisting in prayer? Are we asking for God to help us live more like Jesus? Are we knocking for a forgiving spirit? Are we knocking for the removal of an angry or critical spirit? Are we knocking that we might say no to the lusts of our flesh? Are we asking for more resources so that we might give selflessly, sacrificially, and generously to God's work and to the needy? The data and the altar suggests that the church isn't. If we are weak in prayer, we're weak everywhere. You won't do enough other things to make up for weakness in your prayer life. I'm gonna ask Julia to get her place and the musicians, actually singers, to come on up. I wanna close with this beautiful reminder for this text. Think back to this incredible thing the Lord's doing, preaching and teaching there on the hillside, showing the designs that God has on the disciples' lives, then and now, them and us. But he does it in the context of this. You need to pray, you need to stay in prayer, you need to treat others the way you wanna be treated. And you need to remember that all of this is possible because you have a good, good father. Piper writes it this way. When you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that he pleases, and that he is infinitely righteous so that he only does what is right, and that he is infinitely good so that everything he does is perfectly good, and that he is infinitely wise so that he is always knowing what is good and right, and that he's infinitely loving, so that in all of his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom, he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When you consider all of this and then the lavish invitation that God is giving us to ask and seek and knock on his door for the things that we need, huh? you recognize that this is unimaginably Wonderful.
What a good, good father. I wonder as we take an extra moment this morning to pray, where, where are you struggling? Where is the lack? As you look at the text in Matthew 5 through 7 and see the Sermon on the Mount and say, man, I'd like to meet somebody like this. I'd like to meet somebody living this stuff out. Jesus is saying, that's you. That's you. And if you'll spend time with me, that's you. Let's pray. on your prayer list I wonder this week if you'll add some of those areas from the Sermon on the Mount that you'd like to see God move in your life and put on display so the world might see him I wonder if you wouldn't just add them to your prayer list but you would pray for them like you would a sick child or a miracle in your finances as some people say that you need I wonder if you would confidently and persistently pray knowing that your heavenly Father is going to give you what is good and right. Father, we ask for all of this, for your glory alone, in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.